Grable, and I'm glad that you guys are here and that you made your way here for um, to continue in this series that we're in. If you have not been here, if you're just jumping into our series now, which is on the book of Luke, you do not have to feel like you're going to miss out because I think today this topic closes out one of the most important things Jesus is trying to stress to ultimately would be his followers and a warning in a way to those who oppose what Jesus is teaching in the kingdom in itself. You know, um, as I've been reading through the book of Luke, I've spent a lot of time, especially in this one chapter, and I can see Jesus is shaping up to do something quite large with uh, the direction he's leading his disciples and the way that they should go. So let's pray and then we'll get started. God, we thank you for today. God, we thank you so much for all that you're doing within our own church community. And God, we can't not think of just even on a daily basis of what you have done in our own lives. In the, in the past readings, we've talked about just needing to depend on you and not to look to the things of the outside, but look directly to you, God, where our source of life comes from. And God, I thank you that um, through our church community, God, and the change that is happening within our church community through your very words, Jesus, and God, I ask that you just take them to the next level in our own uh, discipleship process and our own convictions of our faith, and God, and our own passion to move forward to expand your kingdom and, it, and, and allow, I think, to step back and allow the kingdom do the work that it does best. And God, our world, our time, maybe we feel it's more than now than ever, but God just needs the message of the gospel, needs the truth, and God needs the very movement of your kingdom more than ever. And so God, I ask that you just be with us today, God. Don't let us leave the same as we came in, that we each walk out understanding, feeling, and knowing something different. And help us this week to implement it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I titled this message, Kingdom Economics. And this is the only way, I think, to maybe even just, in one phrase, to summarize what Jesus is trying to instill here in his followers, and those ultimately would be to us. You know, he's reshaping our worldview into a kingdom view. He is transforming the way that his followers of that day and every society and, and really nation since uh, has formed their way, the world thinks, the way our systems, I think, formulate how we think, the way culture shapes how we think. And Jesus is slowly, if you will, tipping these tables over. And so he's bringing us to a place I think a lot of people never thought they'd find themselves in, chap in, in chapter 16. But when you think about kingdom economics, how it functions, currency or goods and services, that's generally how the world works. There's a system. There's a kingdom system that is very contrary to the way the world works. Uh, the Bible says in the end times that what will 
seen, what, what, what is good um, will, what is evil will be seen as good. And meaning that as the world, I think, how it will view things that are evil will deem them as good is a way that the Bible says, listen, the kingdom sees good as good and wrong is wrong or evil is evil. But the world in its way, in the way it works, people will see things that are evil as good. And so Jesus is bringing this strong force of the kingdom in its way into his followers to make sure they know that what is and what is not of the kingdom of God. But when we're reshaping our worldview to the kingdom's view, we have to ask, how has your worldview been shaped? Every one of us has a worldview. And how was it shaped? Maybe ask yourself that question this week. How do I see the world and what contributed to me seeing the world the way I see it? Or see myself in it? What I think ultimately commands our focus, concern, and attention as well would be a great question to ask throughout the message and maybe throughout the week. What commands our focus, our concern, and our attention? What pulls us? And what will your kingdom portfolio look like in the end for you? We always work so hard to try to build our portfolio, our investment, diversify, thinking about where it will get us to the end, maybe to retirement. We kind of are trained to think to retirement. And, but the kingdom has a portfolio. And in the end, what will it look like for you when it all comes to an end? How diverse were you in advancing the kingdom? Did you advance the kingdom? I think at the end of the day, we, we, we can't hide the fact that one day we will stand before God and we will be accountable to God. And we, all of us want to hear the very same words that Paul says he hopes he hears. Well done, good and faithful servant. You ran the race. You finished. And you finished strong. So Jesus is on this path. He's taking us all on this path in his teaching in the previous several chapters, starting in 13, really, and then finishing, really culminating in 16 and 17. And he's on this path, and you'll remember these stories that he tells. These are called parables. And he talks about this good Samaritan, which kind of flips the whole system upside down. Who's good and who's not good? Well, who we thought was good is not doing good, but who we thought was not good is doing good. And so the kingdom principles, it, it, ultimately, they're good in it, it, whoever responds to them, responds in good nature and good heart. They become the hero of the story. And then we hear these warnings of like the rich fool, the, the man who built these barns, tore them down because he wanted more, and he wanted to one day have a life where he just ate and drank and was merry and could never have to think about a thing in the world, and he built up for himself, even while, and especially in that time, why others suffered all around, as long as he could be happy. And Jesus says, little did he know his life would be taken that night. What a fool. He squandered the investment, the stewardship he was given. And then we read the prodigal son. That was just in the last chapter. The story of the son who was lost but is now found. And he squandered and wasted everything but found 
a pathway back to God. And so we look at this, and Jesus is shaping something, a narrative, something ultimately a philosophy of the kingdom that we should be tuning into. He's slowly drawing this line, and he's about ready to complete this line about the way of the world and the way of the kingdom. And he is very clearly defining this line up into 16. And Jesus puts, I think, it all into perspective in chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, you can open up. Or if you have your app, it will be on the screen behind me. Um, but you, if you get a chance, read through chapter 16 and then a little bit into 17, um, at least through verse 10 this week especially in preparation for your community groups, it will be very, very good just to kind of see what he's doing throughout this chapter. I'm going to probably my best do is set up for our community group discussion and getting us kind of really the main meat of what Jesus is finishing and teaching here. Now remember, his crowd is, has disciples, has followers, and it has Pharisees. And so the Pharisees have been scoffing at him and they've been mocking his teachings. And so he has a little bit of this mixed crowd. I don't think I've ever spoken where someone was actively mocking me while I'm speaking, right? I don't think I've ever felt that. I, when I did youth ministry, kids would do stuff. They would shout stuff out. Somebody told me things about me I didn't like one time, yelled it all out. And I was like, do I stop and walk off? Like, you know what I mean? It's a weird feeling. He's experiencing this all the time. And so you have to know his crowd when he starts to say some of the things that he says and what he is beginning to say. I have one point and one point, and it's going to be in this one parable we're going to talk about. And I believe that Jesus is really emphasizing the end game. What does the end look like for you? And if we know what our goal is in the end game, how we want to finish, what we know is on the other side of this life, how would we reorient our life, our priorities, our, our ethics? Would we change that knowing a strong end game? But we have to remember to live with the end in sight. That's what Christianity is, is we know that this life is temporal, this life will pass away, this life uh, is only here for a moment. James says in the book of James, it's like a mist and it goes away. So we know everything around us is a gift that God's given us to steward well. And Jesus is going to begin to ask us the question, do you treat this gift that I've given you like a rental car and I know you've all done this. Or do you treat it like it's the most valuable, precious gift that you have? How do you treat this gift of life and everything that God's given you? But I think this is an unusual parable. You will not read one quite like it in the Bible. Jesus uh, uses a very bad example to make a very good point, if you will. It's not kind of his style of what he normally does. And at this time in this culture, he uses this example to a crowd in a community of people who valued something, probably not necessarily the way we would overtly value it, which is shrewdness, um, uh, crafty in a way, or inventive in a way to handle a situation 
It may not be the most moral thing to do, but it is definitely inventive. And so he uses what's happening a little bit in their culture. And I'll give you an example. I was reading an old, uh, kind of an old story um, from uh, uh, ancient rabbi writings. And one of the story goes like this to give you an idea of the shrewdness that was valued and, and how if you could figure your way out of something, it was like, well done. Not the best way to do it um, morally, but well done. And it's like uh, this guy, he gets caught. He's a thief. He gets caught stealing. And they bring him to the king, the, this uh, saying goes. They bring him to the king, and the king says, uh, well, I mean, you're going to be punished for this, and I don't know if it was whatever kind of either execution or it was maybe dismemberment. But they brought him there, and they said, you're guilty. He said, no, 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 no. You don't want to kill me because if you do, it would be a shame that if you lost the secret that I possess, that my father taught me, and if I die, the secret will go to waste. And they said, well, what's the secret? And he said, well, you, you have to promise me that if I share the secret, you would consider, reconsider my sentence. And so he said, yeah, what's the secret? He goes, now I, my father has taught me how to grow a pomegranate tree in one day. And he said, well, then you show us. And he goes out and he goes, brings him out, digs a hole, has a pomegranate seed. And he said, I, but I can't plant it because only a thief, or sorry, only a man who's never stolen from anyone or taken, gotten any ill-gotten gain can plant this seed. And then overnight it will grow. You watch into a beautiful pomegranate tree. And he said, so you, can you plant the seed? And one by one, they said, well, I can't, pl I can't plant the seed because, you know, I, I did get more in my inheritance than I should have, and I didn't tell my brother. And another said, well, I, I had gotten this necklace and, uh, and a piece of jewelry from my father, and I, I had never given it back, and one by one, even to the king, and they said, we can't plant the seed. And he said, well, how could you then hold me to judgment when you yourselves have done it? And the king was so impressed he pardoned the man from there and said, wow, that is smart, but tricky. So Jesus is dealing with this when he shares this parable. He's not honoring someone who's disobedient or dishonoring. He is highlighting a part of culture and how culture rewards itself. But he gives us a very good principle out of it when he begins to share it. So Luke 16, 1, it says, he also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. A manager would be this person who was a steward. So the rich man had a household and the steward was managing it for him or his business while he was gone. And, he, and, and charges were brought up against the steward uh, that the man was wasting his possessions. Now you'll see a correlation happening between us as stewards and what God's given us and wasting the possessions of the one who gave it. It says in verse 2, And he called him and said to him, What is it that uh, I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. Now, this was a crushing blow to the manager. Now, although he squandered, although he wasted, he was a poor steward, and he was dishonest about it, he then has a choice to make accept the consequences, or play within the world system and become more dishonest. And so he makes a choice. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do 
Since my master is taking my man, the, the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. Now, this doesn't mean that he's just a frail old person who has no other options. You thought, man, you can't get another management job somewhere? But what they know, what we don't know, is this man was probably a bond servant or a slave. And he was paying a debt off to the master. And so he was managing the master's affairs. And so he realized that if he fires me, if he releases me, no one in town is going to take me in because of how I've mismanaged it. And my name will be ruined and no one will have me. So I will become probably a beggar. I will not be able to get into someone else's service again. I will trade my integrity ultimately for a way out. I will take short-term gains, right, for a long-term loss is kind of what he gets himself to. And he says in verse 4, I have decided what to do so that when I am um, removed from the management, people will receive me into their houses, right? He has now has a plan. Instead of taking the consequence, instead of being fired, he decides to play within the world system, which will unfortunately reward dishonesty, reward craftiness, and play into a system that's already corrupt that Christ has come to turn over. So he uses this very bad example to get us to see something very, very big picture. I would say that he's going to find himself in a place where he has a very risky choice to make. And it could cost him either his life or he could find a way out. And so here's what he does in verse 5. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, the people who owed the master, and he's trying to reconcile these accounts and he's been handling things terribly. He has a plan. One by one, we don't know how many there were. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. Now, to you and I, means nothing. This is olive oil. We have no idea. I don't even know how to make olive oil. All I know is I dip my bread in it, and it's good, right? And you always cook with it. This is 875 gallons of olive oil. And this is not someone trading in household to household. This is big, big money. And so he goes and says, listen, okay, how much do you owe? And he says, I owe 875 gallons of olive oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Since he's been placed in charge of his master's finances, he says, you know what I'm going to do? My master already hates me. He's going to fire me, so I might as well make good with all the people around me. You know, pat their back, maybe they'll pat my back. He's playing into a system. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. Now to you and I, I don't know what a hundred measures of wheat is, but shockingly, it's 12,000 gallons of wheat. It would take a hundred acres, 10 years to produce it. So it's a massive amount of money. If you want to know the equivalent, it would be filling an entire tanker truck full of grain, and that's how much it would be. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. 
You know what this uh, reminds me of a little bit is this kind of these quick deals, this uh, shady things happening behind closed doors where someone's going to end up paying the price. And usually when you're engaged in, in, in unintegral activities and in ways that are contrary to what the principles of the kingdom are, someone usually will pay the price. I was thinking of the housing crash and um, back in the uh, 2008, and it was such a tragedy, and many of us, I think, suffered through that. We personally were hit by that. And I think about, remember, the, the deals. It reminds me of this kind of deal he's making. Do you remember when you could sit down and you could write in the amount of money that you made? Do you remember that? And they didn't verify it. They just said, Tell, just write in whatever you think. I don't need to check. You just write it in. You're like, well, the only way to get it is if I write in this amount. Okay, that's what I, yeah, it'll be fine. This is the kind of quick deal he's doing here. In the end, someone's going to pay the price and someone's going to profit. I think there's no questions from the people who are signing these deals. So we have a guy who has no integrity and then we have people who are willing to go along with it you know that they've dealt regularly with this master. And they're going, wait a minute, he's going to take 50% off the bill? This doesn't sound like John. He doesn't do that stuff. He's going to knock that off the wheat price when it's so valued right now? This doesn't sound like him. So everyone's playing in the game of the system. It's a fire sale, you know what I mean? And I think ultimately if you look at the United States and you look at where we live and the culture that's around us and probably every other culture, I think this is, it system reflects definitely what's happening here. It's so hard to see so many people lose and other people win based on corruption that's happening. It's very difficult. It's, it's get ahead at all cost. It's I must gain and I'm only thinking about how much I can build for myself. It doesn't matter who loses in the end. And at the end of the day, this is contrary to kingdom living. It's destructive to humanity, but it's directly against the kingdom and how we live. I think of uh, major players today, we could say that do this, and it's pretty obvious as we see big banks do this. We see politicians who do it. We see crooks who are small and large crooks who at the end of the day, it's about my gain now and I don't care who suffers later and they forfeit something important which is the long-term gain. This is what Jesus is talking about happening in this parable. This is what he's relating to. There's kingdom ethics and there's the world's ethics and we will ultimately have to choose. What will you follow? One of the best stories of last year, I loved it, I was rooting for it, is uh, the GameStop price hike. Oh, I was rooting for it. This uh, spike, look at the spike. It was going and all of a sudden all these guys got in and said, and there are a lot of people who were hurt by 2008 with the bankers. If you're in banking, I'm sorry. I don't mean this towards you. It's just what happened. And they decided we're just going to bet on this and make some of these Wall Street people pay for what we felt happened to us. And they skyrocketed the stock. And I remember just watching it every week going higher and higher. And I'm like, ooh, this is exciting. And they were banding together going like, at least we, us little guys can take a shot 
at trying to hurt the big guy just a little bit. And then they forgot what system that they live in and the big banks and everybody shut them down and didn't let them do it and the stock fell. And they tried. Jesus is pointing out something that is, happens that is a system that we will continually have to fight. You will have to choose to join in with quick gains and building this life only for things and stuff and he who dies with the most toys wins or building a world that is kingdom-based. Matthew, uh, oh, sorry, not, uh, sorry, verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, this does not happen in Jesus' parables. He's saying the master came in and commended him and said, wow, I'm blown away by how cunning and skillful you were. It's like I'm watching this series, Oceans, Oceans 11, and the people who get robbed are, 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 are thieves themselves. And then when they're robbed, it's almost like they step back and, be, and say to themselves, wow, that was impressive. I'm angry, but in our world, I'm impressed. And so this is what he does. The master commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now that might not make a lot of sense. But he's saying the sons of this world, meaning those who are not sons of the light, meaning believers. We see the sons of light in three different references, but I'll read Ephesians 5, 8 for you. This is, we're called the sons of the people of light. For at one time, Ephesians 5, 8, you were... You, uh, time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Meaning that even these people who walk in darkness, they're more shrewd, at least thinking of the end than you are. Why? And so here's where the rub is. Where Why is it those who are so, they're so shrewd and trying to build for themselves a life that ultimately will be meaningless if that's what they build it on. But you as sons of light, why aren't you as end game thinking, building up treasures in heaven, giving your life to try to make everything happen for the kingdom? Why? Why do non-believers do everything to secure their future, but you don't when it comes to the kingdom? We are kind of remember, if you think back, the rich man who did tear down his buildings and all he could think about was building stuff that would make his life great and not about anything else around him. At the end of the day, it was all for a loss. And so we have to remember back to that as Jesus is building and heading here. In verse 9, and I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. That's a weird thing to say, but what he's saying is make friends for yourself. Eternal friends. Someone you will meet in eternity. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. What does that mean? By the system of the world, is an, when it says unrighteous wealth, it means it's just not of the kingdom's wealth, but it's what we have to work with here. It's somewhat neutral until our motivations make it either evil 
or put it to good work. And he's saying with the resources and the life that you've been given, put it to use that one day you might meet someone in the kingdom when you are passed on that will say, you do not know me, but I live in such and such a place and the investment that you made that it ultimately led someone to me, I want to thank you for that. You'll make friends in an eternal perspective. And he goes on to say, he says, so that when it fails, that they may receive you into the eternal dwellings, meaning that they may be waiting for you. Now we know that finances is not the only way to spread the gospel or invest. We invest our time, our energy, our life. But it's pretty clear here, Jesus says, is that with what we've been given, do we steward it for the kingdom so that those who we may not even know or know will welcome us into the kingdom. I think this is the kingdom mindset of worldly money. The Bible never says money is bad. The Bible never says it's evil. What the Bible does say is the level of which we value it can become evil. And evil things can happen from that. And so God has given us, when we're talking about being a steward, God has given us something to manage. And how do we manage it? Jesus is asking that question. Do we put it to use? Do we invest in treasures in heaven? I make this joke once in a while, but when someone's like, oh, should I pay you for what you helped me with? And I was like, oh, no, I'm just getting rubies in heaven. And they're like, oh, that's weird. It's a little chuckle. But like, I kind of really like know that it, 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 that's not what I need. You know, that's not what I want to do. That's not what I care about. What I want is to please God and spread the kingdom the best I can. And I think you should, all of us should ask this question is, will you be welcomed by people that you've never known into the kingdom? That's a really good question. Because it will tell you where your investment in life, financially, even just in our time, our energy, will, will you possibly one day be welcomed by those who you may not even know because of the passion that you've had for the kingdom, the priority that you've placed it in, or will we just be buried with a lot of stuff? You'll have to choose faithfulness as a steward every time. And he makes it real clear in Luke 16, 10, one who is faithful in very little is faithful in very much. Now you're going to see this contrast. Faithful and not faithful. Little and much. And the one who is dishonest in very little is dishonest in very much. So I think the, the, the lie, especially when it comes to finances, is the lie that we'll say is that I'll become a person once I get what, what I ultimately want. Or once I've had enough, I can then look to the other. Um, when I've accumulated enough things or I will never want for money. But that just isn't true. Have you ever seen somebody who's won the lottery? They always say, I've said this myself. If I won the lottery, I would give half of my money to churches. Now, would I? You're supposed to be like, of course you would, Ryan. We know you. You're a saint. I don't know. 
when all that money appears and I'm like, well, I need a yacht, of course. <laughs> who, knows? who knows what might come my way to pull me. It's very enticing. Or we think that, oh, when I get this inheritance, I'm going to be generous towards the kingdom or put it to work or be creative with this to put people in places that, that, that the gospel needs help and thriving. Or we might just say, boy, I need to really set myself up for the future, and, and then we get distracted, and that's what we've worked on. I like this statement I heard from a pastor. He said, you are right now who you are. The world's wealth will not change who you are. It will only magnify it. And so it can't be that if I have much, I'll be faithful. It has to be if I have little, I'm faithful. Because if we're dishonest with little, we'll be dishonest with much. And I don't mean this is about giving necessarily. This is about generosity with our time. Well, if I have a little time, am I faithful with my little time? Or is my little time, I just can't give it to this conversation of where God's leading me or who to speak to. If I have a little finances, I can't generally put it towards gospel work because it's just right now, it's just not a good idea. Maybe when I get a lot, who you are is who you are now. Uh, the, if you get more time or you get more money, it will not change who you are. Jesus came to change who you are. So we will be faithful with little, and he will make us faithful with much for sure. And I'll say this, is that um, when we're looking at this passage here, we think about, man, faithful with little, faithful with much. God ultimately changes our heart. It will never be the things around us. Verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, which is currency and finances in the world system, who will entrust you with true riches? And true riches is ultimately the gospel, salvation, eternity. Who, who will entrust you if you're not even faithful with what the world has? How, how, how can you be entrusted with true riches, eternal truths? Verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, meaning a steward of. If you haven't been faithful with what God's giving you, then how can you be faithful with the things that are most important to God? The Bible says that the earth is his and everything within it is his, so therefore we are stewards of it. And if we're not faithful with that, how can we be faithful with the important things? Verse 13, and it says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And this is where he is drawing this very strong line. Will you be a slave to manna, to money, or be a slave to God? There is really no other. You cannot have both. You must serve one, and one will follow your service to that other. 
First Timothy 6, 6 uh, says this, and this will be our last passage. Um, uh, it says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now remember, this is third generation believer that Paul's writing to. But Paul says it so well. Christ is gone. He's been resurrected. And Paul is writing this years and years later. So this has taken root in the Christian faith. This sense of like, you can't serve God in money. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we were brought, uh, we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Now that's so simple. All you were given was a slap on your butt so you would cry, and you were brought into this world naked, and all you will be given is a burial at the end of your life. We can take nothing with us. And with that perspective in mind, God is saying, knowing that you can take nothing with you, knowing that these things will not make you happy, and knowing that <laughs> the end is coming for all of us one day, and knowing that you have been given this all to store because none of it is yours in the first place. How do we live our life? Knowing that we can take nothing with us. Do we leave it all on the floor, if you will, in sports terms? Do we go all out for the kingdom? The Egyptians tried this. Look at this burial chamber. This is King Tut's burial chamber, which is one of the greatest cash finds, if you will, or of antiquity. And, and it's an amazing find. It was, had gold chariots and thrones. And, and they, the way the Egyptians would bury themselves in these chambers is they'd have all these little figurines that they said would come to serve them in the afterlife, right? And they would have tons of drinks and food and all waiting in there for themselves to take into the afterlife. They would take all of their servants that they needed and then and when the Pharaoh would die, they would kill all of the servants so they could serve the Pharaoh in the afterlife, but they could take nothing with them. Now, we laugh at the pharaohs and say, that's ridiculous. How could they think that? But sometimes we live that way. We think that maybe we can take it all with us. You may not think that consciously, but maybe we live like we, this world is all about those things. Genghis Khan did the same thing. He piled all of his great treasures on top of him and was buried. And so people have been looking for his grave for years and years and years because they'll find this great hoard of treasure. He wanted to take it with him. And in China, some of the great uh, uh, dynasty leaders and uh, were emperors were, were buried with thousands of people to serve them in this afterlife when they uh, all their treasures. It's worthless. We have to have the cradle-to-grave mentality, which is you were born and you will die, and what do you do with what God's given you? How do you steward it? It's important. Let's finish up with verse 8. But if we had food and clothing, with these things we can be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, 
It, it, in many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money. It's the love of it. It's our hope in it. It's what we think it will do for us that will get us into all kinds of things that pull us away from the very work that God has us. And I will just say this straight. Christians cannot fall into this pit. And you may say, well, that's because you don't have very much money. If you had a lot of money, Ryan, boy, you'd really think differently. I don't know. I hope not. I think that at the end of the day, you, me, we will all stand before God. And my money will mean nothing to him. He has a different accounting sheet with kingdom economics. And so I'm not saying this in a way to feel bad about money whatsoever, and you shouldn't, because money is very neutral. But where is it in our priority list? Because we cannot serve God in money. And what does the end game look like for us? Are we following the kingdom ethics? Because we can have shrewd dealing within this world, or we can have integrity, right? <laughs> you can have, be generous, or you cannot. You can be someone who's compassionate or not, honest or not. You can love or not. You can have faith or not, and ultimately you can go God's way or not. But the kingdom has a very set ecosystem and economy. And God wants his believers, his followers, to follow in that way for the kingdom's work. I'll ask this last question. Ultimately, it's God's economy, it's his currency, it's his ethics. And they are what lasts, they are what carry over. And so when, when, when I can't remember what writer wrote it, it might have been Paul, but at the end of the day, don't store up treasures that are here on earth, store up treasures that are in heaven. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about now is that be kingdom-focused and kingdom-minded. The world needs the good news. And whether it's by finances, or whether it's by time, or whether it's by energy or effort, or even prayer, the kingdom needs, or the world needs the good news. This last question, what economy will you invest in? What will your portfolio look like at the end of your life? And will you be proud of it? I pray our church is proud of the heavenly portfolio they built with earthly goods and earthly stewardship. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you, God, for just this, I think, uh, sometimes need to have these very strong sayings from you, Christ that snap our mindsets in line with what you're doing. Jesus, I thank you that you have pointed a new way, a new direction, that integrity reigns in your kingdom, that honesty reigns in your kingdom, that generosity reigns in your kingdom, that compassion reigns in your kingdom, and heaven definitely has winners And so, God, I just thank you for that, Lord, that you have, each one of us, led us a little closer to your kingdom ethics, your kingdom economy.
And at the end of the day, God, we want to follow you, Jesus. You displayed it so well. And God, help us for any of us who are struggling in this area. We live in the United States of America, the 1%, if you will, of the entire world. And God, that we are wealthy beyond the world's standards in history. And God, help us remember that we do not serve money, but we serve you. We do not serve the world's status, but we serve you. We do not serve the world's comforts, but we serve you. And so God, help us to reorient our lives for the end game. For kingdom and its economy. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me this last song?